Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Nothing is Real, a Beatles podcast, is powered by Acast. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin. For season two, we are bringing uh, some more guests into our Beatles pod here in Dublin. And uh, we're delighted this week that we have uh, with us Mr. Robin Hitchcock. Hello, Robin. Hi there, Jason. (laughs) It's great to have you here. Uh, I'm assuming anybody listening to the podcast does know who Robin Hitchcock is. He's one of Britain's preeminent singer-songwriters, performers. He's got a recording catalogue that goes back over 40 years and is... uh, Uh, just one of the great treasures of British music. But we are here to talk about the Beatles because they run loom large in everybody's legend, but they're a term we've heard you talk about, a theme we've heard you talk about many times in the the past. And one of our opening gambits whenever we talk to people about the the Beatles is your first exposure, because you're the right age to have just, to have them hit you as a a kid, really. I was. I was 10 thinking about it. And... um, like a lot of things, it, they sort of came out of the corner of the eye, you know. So I, I, I think I actually heard Love Me Do a couple of times, but I don't quite know how because there was hardly any pop radio in those days. There was, there was the top 20 on Sunday afternoons. There was Radio Luxembourg, but I don't think I was even listening to that. And mm-hmm. there was maybe something else on it. It was the light program. Um, <laughs> and, um, but I, I, I may have backdated it into my memory, but it, then I remember it, there was a very cold winter, um, 62 into 63. 63 yeah. And um, and I just remember as it was beginning to thaw out, the, the word the Beatles was appearing a lot. Other kids at school, I mean, I was, that's when I turned 10, you know, were coming in with the new musical express or disc and talking about the Beatles. And, in my sort of timid, snobbish way, I thought, the Beatles, that's a silly name. <laughs> um, and then, funnily enough, my dad came into the room where my sister and I were watching Fireball XL5 on black and white television. That, that was the sort of precursor to Thunderbirds, if you yeah. remember that mm-hmm. far yep. back. These pepper sort of puppets, puppets, space puppets. And he just bought a transistor radio and he said, Oh, you might like to listen to this. And he he brought in it was Alan Freeman on Pick of the Pops, you know, the the top yeah. twenty the top twenty program. And um we thought, Oh Dad, we're watching Fireball XL five. <laughs> um but <laughs> he brought it in and it was the Beatles were playing. I think they had I guess From Me to You had mm. come out. And um 
we were hooked the next week we so we watched it with the sound down um and the next week we didn't bother to watch uh fireball xl5 we put the transistor radio in a pram and we pushed it around outside like it was a baby and <laughs> um and then that was it it was really quick but i think it was we were on the cusp of please please me and from me to you yeah so that's where i came in and by the time she loved you was out i was a fully paid up yeah. beetle maniac yeah so, yeah, your, so. Your, your father was encouraging you to listen to pop music My that, that must have been quite father was he he had an uh an eye or an ear or a nose various parts of the body for for developments for mm. innovations and i think he thought this is something that the kids might like mm. uh it wasn't necessarily his jam but he thought it might be ours and um He's quite quite progressive. Fair play to him. Yeah, yeah. he yeah, was yeah. he was very good with that sort of thing. I remember him taking me down to. He said, "You're going to want to go down to um, Portsmouth tomorrow morning." We were living in Hampshire at that point. At eight, I said, "I'll take you down to. to no, I'll take you down to Southampton tomorrow." For, for, and I said, "Why? What's that?" And he said, "The Bob Dylan tickets are going on sale." <laughs> he didn't care for Dylan himself, but he knew I liked that. You know. Yeah. He was um, uh, interesting. Yes, fella. Was he musical or not at all? But he liked a nice tune, and it was interesting. I remember watching. Um, there was a TV program with them doing uh, in my life. Two years later, this is sixty-five. Two years after after he'd appeared, the epiphany had mm. come on the transistor radio. You know, yes. and the, uh, my sister and I were a bit bigger then, and we probably got a new pram or something. <laughs> and and he. Um, I remember sitting there watching it with him, and and he was saying, "Oh, they're, they're really good, aren't they? The Beatles, oh, they're really good, aren't they?" Joycey Love, he'd say to my mum, and my mum was called Joyce. She'd just go mm, mm. <laughs> like that, like a sort of like a, a quite a rodent that was quite hard to impress. She didn't like to commit herself. She was yeah. not an enthusiast, but my dad was an enthusiast, um, and he even if he, I don't know, he got it. It was very, very interesting what he would get, you but, know. But that's an interesting microcosm of 1963 because yeah. there's the youth who are finding the music and these four guys irresistible. But yeah. there's also this kind of parallel, you know, particularly, you know, the Sunday Times article and all this, this parallel thing of people giving the Beatles kind of a, a stamp of authority saying, no, this is a, a different thing and these are special, this is a special kind of artistic change here in pop music. Ah, you mean was it William Mann? The, yeah. the article with the Aeolian the early cadences, cadences and the stuff that John Lennon was very sniffy about. Mm. Um, yeah, well, they were right. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, they the Beatles came in at so many. They got through on so many different levels. Yes. Um, I mean. Watching Hard Day's Night, the other thing that struck me about them was that they were basically a comedy act. They mm. were like the Marx, Marx Brothers. Brothers. They yeah. worked as a team, and I'm sure the parallel was drawn at the time, but yeah. I hadn't I hadn't seen the Marxes yet. Um, but, you know, these these four guys who moved around, in just they set themselves up. The only other band I can think of like that was Madness, yeah. who just knew where to put themselves. Mm. And that's quite an art. You yes. know? Uh, I don't know if the Rolling Stones could do that or... or um, you know the monkeys could do it, but they were actors. Yeah. Uh, so that they they came in as you know supposedly didn't didn't George Martin think of the Beatles? He wasn't sure about the songs and he wasn't sure who the lead singer should be, but he thought they were a great comedy team. Yeah. 
Yes, he um, said it was the humour. It was that that yeah. that's the sort of the struck in their personality. Yeah, the, the charm. I suppose yes. they had a charm that comes across in interviews or on on TV appearances. Well, it, and it's, they were charming, but they were also cheeky. Mm. But somehow, you know, Lennon was the edgiest of them. But they were all a bit. It was all slightly risky, mm. you know, but it wasn't full on offensive. No. Uh, left to his own devices, he probably would have been, but he had the others to be good cops. Yeah. And, um, and he could also be terribly funny. So he, you didn't quite know what you were going to get with him. Um, he was probably, he was probably a pretty disturbed individual and probably not great to run across, but, mm. but you know, uh, but then at times, apparently he was, you know, so you don't know, but they, the, the, it was just this thing of the four of them, you know, you wonder what, if they hadn't kicked out Pete Best, would Pete Best have fitted in the mm. same, would he have been the yeah. same as, you know, I, I, Ringo's I, a masterstroke. Yes. Yes. But yeah. any, I, I, my, my own theory is that any band is only as good as its drummer, you know, and I think Ringo was the final bit that turned them into them. You know, he's he and, and I was watching Hard Day's Night. It was on over Christmas. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I wasn't intending to watch it because I haven't seen it in about 10 years. But it, it is a striking piece of uh, I, I find sometimes the early Beatles gets overlooked. Everyone gets excited about the later stuff because, you know, this may be more of a narrative to it or, you know, something like Abbey Road fits in more with modern music. But early Beatles. They they just it's amazing how they stick out from what's going on around them and all the time. There's one tiny flash spit in, in Hard Day's Night where they run past a some World War Two bombed out remains. You know, and you would yeah. and you think that's still in the air that that is what they are coming out of and what they're yes. trying to represent a change from. You know, it's really yes, it's really uh, incredible. You know, well, I suppose it took a long time to recover from World War Two. But it was, I mean, I was, th funny, I was looking at the movie and I thought, yeah, gosh, this is where World War II really ends. Yeah. But except it was in my lifetime, I was right there and I was brought up with, you know, all the war comics, all the, the Germans, you know, Mein Gott, Himmel, Teufel, yeah. explosions everywhere. You know, you, there's that bit where Lennon's in the bath doing yes. you know, yes, German was, explosion yeah. noises and everybody, all the, British kids were brought up to boys, British boys were brought up to do German explosion noises and have a sort of morbid fascination with the with the Luftwaffe and all that stuff. And, you know, airfix kits being Jewish wouldn't do a, a, a swastika decal on the tail of their planes, whereas the Ravel people would. And I was fascinated by swastikas, you know, yeah. all that Nazi apparatus and but I also knew very early on what it was, you know, we knew about the camps and everything. But I mean, this is a slight bit of a diversion, but but yeah, it was, it was, it, you know, the timing was fantastic. Mm. That it, it all seems like, it seems like it's a higher power yeah. engineering the whole thing. How come you got three incredibly talented songwriters with straight brown hair, five foot 11, Growing up in the same city, um, any one of whom could have fronted a band or been a solo act, mm. if you like, certainly John and Paul, but George also wrote good enough songs. Um, and then they hook up with another straight head, half inch shorter bloke, Ringo. But Ringo is the, like you said, you know, that's when it fits into place yeah. completely. And, you know, but they're all in one city. That's I, um, I, I have a friend that, that cites yeah. that as the. Uh, Proof of uh, a, 
a divine <laughs> intervention. You know, well, the, 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 it, that can't be a coin. That can't be just uh, or aliens. You no, know, uh, something something out there. You know, and I mean, also doing it in Liverpool because the other big thing was the class system. Mm. Certainly in in Britain, in England, you know, there was there was the the there was the BBC. Oxford, Cambridge, the central core, the sort of establishment, if you like, and then you had the you had the lower orders, um, and then you had regionals, and and the purpose of you know the BBC and the Oxbridge would you just get a laugh out of making everybody else out to be a yokel or an oaf, you know, mm. or talk like that, don't I, mate? Or all right, come in front, come from your ass country, don't I? You like that? Mm. If the Beatles had come from London, they'd have, they would have had to, or down south, they'd have had to have fitted into a class. Would mm. they have, you know, they, would they have been laundered? I mean, you know, Cliff Richard was sounding posh by the time he did Espresso Bongo. Mm. There wasn't even an estuary accent in those days. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, if they if they'd been too posh or if they'd been too down market, it, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have captured everybody. But being Liverpool was regional, so it was. It was slightly outside of the class system already, you know. And mm. then Liverpool's also where kind of Lancashire meets Ireland. So you've got mm. that, you know, the, the Manchester always strikes me as quite dour, whereas Liverpool's got that, it, it's an yeah. edgy place, but there's a lot of humour to it. Mm. And the, you know, the voice goes up and down and that stuff, you know. And it, it's just the timing, the place, yeah. the perfect, the numbers, you know, it all just seems uncanny. Yeah, if it, if it was a fictional story, you almost wouldn't believe it. The the amount of things that have to happen in a straight line yes. for it to have delivered, you know, it's, uh, it is quite the quite the thing. Yes, that's, I think maybe, don't you think George ought to come from, you know, he should come from Salford. And I feel like <laughs> maybe, Paul, people moved over from Newcastle. If we're, <laughs> outside of London, I can accept, but, you know, let's just sort of move them, bring them in. For, yeah, quite. A, a little bit more acceptable yeah I think it's more likely you know but (laughs) there was obviously a sense at that time that 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 British society or English society was looking for something. It, the society was ready. You know, you had things like Profumo. You'd have, yes. You had the mm-hmm. Beyond the Fringe, that there was that sort of breaking down. You know, yeah. People like David Bailey and all those coming through as well, who had also would have but maybe tried to break a class fame you system got as well. all that, you know, and you got, that was the other great thing was that, you know, that you had the upper classes starting to aspire downwards. So mm-hmm. Peter Cook... Uh, you know, Peter Cook had his, his sort of two big personae was, you know, Streeb Griebling. Yes. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, that sort of voice, you know. And then there was E.L. Oyster, who was like this, you know. And, and he kind of basically aspired downwards. If you hear him, I, I heard him recorded in 1960, 61 for an interview, and he sounds like this. He's basically got one of these uh, what the older voices. Hmm. And then by 1974, he's got an estuary voice, you know. Um, it's just... The beat, you know, so some of them, the, the the rock pop groups aspired upwards, and the and the the beyond the fringes the aspired downwards. Yeah. You know, mm. and it was all it, suddenly it was just really really meteorological. Yeah. <laughs> so what I what I think Lennon in particular was able to do was, as you say, he they were cheeky, mm. and it's that point where you, they seem to know on camera the line that they could yes. just push that line. Yes, um, where people. They're laughing slightly because they're feeling guilty that they're laughing. Uh, you know, my, my well, mother. If I, say, if I tell my yeah. mother a slightly risque yes. joke, <laughs> she she laugh. 
because she feels slightly guilty that she's yes. doing something that's not quite permitted or not quite yes. allowed. And I think it, it the Beatles, Lennon in particular, yeah. allowed people to do that. They're sort of laughing and they're going along and they're feeling slightly guilty and that sort of you know, a little sort of yeah. thrill at doing it. Yeah. Uh, and the Beatles really just exploited that, I think. Rattle your jewellery. Well, rattle your exactly. jewellery is the one. Exactly. Um, but it wasn't, you know, like, screw you up there. You know, yeah. you've got stuff that belongs to everybody else. Yeah. It was it was, it was, was cheeky a subtle, a and it was charming. Yeah. To it. But and, Lennon had yeah. sold it to Brian Epstein as being, I'm going to say, rattle your fucking jewellery. He was, he was going to curse. Oh, and he? then he brings that back he, from the line. That's why he was going to say it. Yeah. Uh, but he, I think he, a fucking jewellery. Yeah. But I think he did, he did it to because he was playing with Epstein. Oh, yeah. so he, Epstein he was, took the fucking out. So he, no, no, Epstein, I think, was, was sort of Epstein was sitting like, there thinking, anything. is he going to do this? Is oh, he going okay. to do this? But I think it was the same way he was kind of uh, playing with Epstein. Uh, yeah. you know, oh, on, on nerving so him. he, right, he probably, well, I didn't know, it was, I mean, he thought it out in advance, but, oh, okay, wow. Yeah, so you can see him lean into the when he's doing that. You can see Lennon leaning into the microphone and it, with yeah. a kind of grin on his face that he knows <laughs> he's going, going to, to say it. something cheeky. And yeah. I say cheeky that you. That, I think that's yeah. exactly the right word. But did you, you use? Did you watch that going out at the time? The Royal Variety performance. When no, I did a, a lot of. I remember throwing a big fit because I didn't. <laughs> they wouldn't let me watch the Beatles because Grandma wanted to watch black and white minstrel show or something oh, like dear. that. Oh, the sign of the times. Mom, Dad, it's not fair. My, my cousin came up and sort of, you know, him showing me some pinky and perky slides in bed as a consolation because oh, I, I don't know, but they obviously felt politically it was grandma's turn, not mine. And, um, Oh God! What a little brat! Um, <laughs> and, and, the, and the movie Hard Day's Night. Were you, were you going to see that? I and... saw that when it came out, and I saw it about a week ago, and I hadn't seen it since 1964. So I saw Stains Odeon with my friend Gregory, <laughs> and so I remembered very little except for Wilfred Bramble coming up through the trap door. What I didn't realise was that he actually came up twice through a trap door. Yes, um, but. I was just amazed at how how good they were it's yeah. still as a team. Yeah, it's, because, it really is. And, you know, because also, like you said, people tend to get drawn towards the later stuff mm -hmm. because because in a way the songs are more developed, you know, yeah. and, and the the differences are developing and all that lot. But it, yeah. they worked so well, and I thought, God, I can't believe you know John and Paul are that close, or yeah, you know Ringo is. Looking for sort of looking for tension between Paul and George, you know, who you, you feel were really kind of mm. that was another big fault line. Mm. Everyone got along with Ringo because he wasn't a threat, yeah. you know, and he made a quarter of the money that the rest of them did. But you know, uh, but no, it was just the early Beatles as an entity yeah. was miraculous. And the know. songs from that era, I think, are they're, they're full of joy. There's something just very naive and very yeah. engaging and yeah. uh, joyful. Well, there is because they hadn't been given dope yet by Bob yeah. Dylan. <laughs> Bob, Bob Dylan was, the, to me, was the serpent. You know, in the Garden of Eden, he brought knowledge. He he brought the apple. But it had to happen, though. Didn't and it? I suppose so. But you know yeah. that that was. I mean, whether he'd given them marijuana or not, they were they were being corrupted by his music. They were mm. losing their innocence. Um, but Dob Dylan gave the whole thing a brain, which made it more more potent. Otherwise, it would just have basically been like four Elvises. You know, it was yeah. sort of there was there wasn't anything. Th there was no danger in 
in the the lyrics and the the intent of the you know yeah. it was, was entertainment. It was entertainment. Yeah. It was fine. It didn't. They, it was like a fifteen word vocabulary. But it's interesting. You know, yes, you know, diamond my friend Diamond Ring. Yes, yeah, yes. you know. I mean, they they put Britain on the map with the word yeah. You know, it yeah. was just like that. That's what <laughs> that's their big contribution. You know, <laughs> and, one of one of many. And Dylan, at what point then? Dylan's obviously a huge influence as well uh, on the Beatles, but also on on you but can you were you aware at the time of dylan's influence on the band or you uh... no i wasn't aware of that i didn't get into dylan until 1966 when mm. revolver came out i mean at the same time you know yeah. um i remember hearing like a rolling stone and um uh rubber soul kind of almost daily basis at school but <laughs> uh I didn't really associate them, you know, and and I didn't notice them changing because I was changing, you know. Yeah, yeah. I was ten. That's that's the thing for me personally. I just I was ten when when From Me to You came out, and I was sixteen when Abbey Road came out. Yeah, I was seventeen when Let It Be came out. I left school, and the Beatles broke up. You know, so without. You know, Bob Dylan didn't hand me personally a marijuana cigarette, but I suppose I was going through a lot of the same stages that they mm. were going through, apart from not being a million seller or being <laughs> able to play the guitar yet. But, you know, but just the the evolution was so extreme. Yeah, the evolution in society. Um, See, one, yeah. one of the one of the things that we're always very interested in, or I'm I'm always interested. In, I'm I'm much older than uh, <laughs> not uh, than, than Jason, but I. I Sort of, it was. This, I, I was experiencing the Beatles from sort of 74, 75, 76 was when I started picking up on them. And I'm, I'm so with hindsight, it's an easy thing to say, well, you can see Dylan influencing Lennon, Lennon influencing Dylan, mm. uh, Pink Floyd, Sid Barrett, whatever. You can see that all with hindsight. But, but at the time, it's always fascinating to me how that uh, seemed to be unfolding, if it did seem to be unfolding to the sort of contemporary. Observer, and uh, you know, you're saying you weren't really conscious. No, at the time. no, because it was a very different me by the end. Yeah, mm. but people th weren't thinking about these things at the time. There weren't big think pieces in magazines, or there wasn't a lot of access to the oh. peripheral journalism or media. That well, pop it's culture was it, there. That's really? where that developed. That's yeah. where those five-page articles on the Grateful <laughs> Dead started appearing in Rolling Stone. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. and in Britain, you know, the pop press. A serious pop press was was looking to evolve because it had all all it had been had been like sort of you know three paragraphs about what their favorite clothes were and you know where they might play in a pub and what kind of girls they liked to date <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. that that they were the journalism in depth journalism had to evolve to keep up with music that took itself seriously because by 1969 1970 you could go into pop music or was it because it became rock didn't it yeah you know, another one of the great changes uh you you could go into rock taking yourself as seriously as you know you might be the new benjamin Britten or something mm. you know and pete townsend did yeah you know yes. he was as far as he was concerned he was a modern composer i read that you know you had a a band in art school called the beatles spelled correctly yeah, yeah and i'm wondering you know i always think that people had this notion of well we're just going to look at our watch and wait for the next beatles to come along but there was never going to be another beatles and you know was it no in no. terms of being a Beatles fan in that kind of post-Beatles wasteland, was that, 
it, it's sort of a, in retrospect, it seems a bit like a, a no man's land. We don't have the big Beatles industry that we have now. No. And people thought, well, we pop music was seemed to be a thing that, well, that's something that happens. Yes. It didn't have a long tail. So as you kind of evolved into somebody who wrote your own music and performed your own music, you know, what did it mean to reference the Beatles at that time or to feel them at that time? Well, I think I was aware of being a throwback even as I started. You know, <laughs> I started my art school band, The Beatles, was in 72, 73. And I remember somebody we played a couple of art school dances and somebody said, oh, yeah, your band's fun, but, uh, you know, um, do you play any bump and grind? You know, <laughs> anything funky? You know, and I, I, I was very aware of sinking into a just out... Once you'd I'd gone past the portals of 1970, that basically it was a kind of no man's land. It was an abyss. It was a, a scary place full of burning oil drums <laughs> and, you know, villains swooping down and giant vultures pucking, pe plucking your head off. You know, it, was, it didn't feel safe or welcoming. Hmm. Um, I... So I, I could see all these things happening, you know, which things that now seem quaint and safe, you know, like Philly Soul or Glam or, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. But I, I, for me, the grail was to make music like it had been in 1967, not, but not necessarily, not like, not flowers and love and mm -hmm. sunshine and all that, but, but that thing of, the three-minute pop song that had all these different layers to it that was kind of almost too intense to exist, you know, yeah. like like Good Vibrations or See Emily Play or Are You Experienced or Eight Miles High. I, I thought that that's the thing. To me, that's the genre. Yeah. And, of course, the great practitioners of that were the fabs. Mm -hmm. You know, I Am the Walrus, um, day in the life then particularly once you've got two guitars bass and drums revolver hmm. so dr robert and your bird can sing that sort of the john ones but that sort of birdsy end of the beatles um but the paul songs were fantastic too you know revolver they're all kind of they're still level pretty mm, much yeah. and um and george has got three songs on there you know it it, that, that, to me, that's the sort of miracle record. Uh, and I just thought, I suppose Revolver was the template. You know, I thought I've got, got to get two guitars, bass and drums and some harmonies and just carry on making Revolver-type music. Yeah. I remember sending someone a postcard in 74 saying, I'm hell-bent on psychedelic, being psychedelic. Am I flogging a dead horse? I don't know if they ever replied to me. But, you know, I, so... So, you know, time went on and pre-punk, everything I did or wanted to do, I was too inept for it, people to really see what it was I was trying to do. And then I hooked up with the other soft boys and they were technically able to start realizing the things I wanted to do, you know, the first couple of soft boys records, but they were very experimental in a way, they were experimental pieces of music, but... I remember the first thing we did, and uh, um, wading through a ventilator, and everybody, you know, why, you know, correctly said, "Oh, Sid Barrett," you know, especially when I double tracked my voice and things. But somebody else said, "You know what? This sounds like it's the Beatles." Yeah. Um, and I remember hearing a live Soft Boys tape playing in the other room, and I thought it was Dylan. Mm. So, and those, those were the, those were my real. It's 
you know, that, that's the real the flower beds out yeah. of which I grew. <laughs> and, um, and neither the Beatles nor Dylan were at all what people wanted during punk. No. So, uh, again, you know, we, we kind of hatched out too late in some ways and too early in other ways. And when the bunny men, Echo and the Bunny Men and Julian Cope and all that lot happened in the early 80s, that people were ready for a psychedelic, yes thing but they weren't ready when we did it and um and then when oasis came along and went full beetle you know that was two generations yeah. after the soft boys so i was just very aware of being an anachronism well, what um, you were doing you 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 were at soft boys were carrying the flag through a, a wasteland we were carrying like i said you know I, I knew it was it was we were going through went through the portal and it was going to be hostile territory and it was <laughs> If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Did you, did you find, uh, in the soft point, did you find like-minded people or did you have to, did, did you have to convince them that this is the, what, what was the right thing to be doing or were they already there? Uh, well, I went to Cambridge because it was a finite. I I couldn't hack it in London. I, my my ego was too fragile, <laughs> and I was just too young to. Uh, I wish I had. I wish I'd been around and gone to all the the. All the uh, pub rock gigs where mm. punk incubated. Mm. I wish I'd got to know those people. You know the Clash and the Brinsleys. Uh, the, the, the Brinsleys. I mean, I, you know, Nick Lowe's quite a an old friend now but mm. I wasn't yeah but that lot probably them more than more than the punk people but I, yeah so I went I went I I had a friend in Cambridge I had a great I had a good jam with and um, so I went up there and it took me a couple of years but I eventually recruited the sort of the musicians that everybody spoke about, you know, yeah. Kimberly Rue. People said you've got to see this guy, Kim Rue. He's an amazing guitarist. You know, he's he's very good. And someone said, "This uh, drummers, what you want to get hold of is Morris Windsor." Yeah. 
you know, and we had a couple of different bass players, but they were all very respected musicians and they were all into um some of them like steely dan and the beach boys um some of them liked kim was a big star and kinks fan um but but everybody liked beatles hmm. so in between my songs you know me working my stuff out with them um we would just go and play Beatles records. It would keep everybody interested. I had this a couple of weeks ago in Nashville. Um, we were playing some... God, I don't know what we were doing. We did a few Beatles songs as the encore with you guest with, vocalists. Uh, Wilco, you were doing Tomorrow Never Knows, I saw that. We did. We did Tomorrow Never Knows and I Am The Walrus. Yeah. Um, Pat Sanson, who's in Wilco, is also in my, my Nashville ensemble, the Nashville Fabs, no less. Um <laughs> But my wife Emma named them that, but it's it's apt. They're Beatles freaks. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we were all that same thing of trying to work out. You get a bunch of musicians together. Yeah. Now, what is that chord? And it invariably comes up. And, the you know, the soft boys were no exception. So, yeah, we we would sit there, you know, working out She's So Heavy and and all that I mean to this day if I'm with people it, it, it keeps going back to that it's a common yeah. language for professional it's musicians it's a common language and, and then you know I suppose that's the thing if, if there's, to me the Beatles was a school it was an academy mm. and it had three three songwriting graduates John Paul and George and what really comes through is after it's over, they're still there they are and they're still doing these minor sixth. Yeah. There's actually, whatever their disagreements, their musical language is exactly the same. They've all got, they're equipped with that stuff somewhere between between Tamla Motown and George Formby. There's all these different little yeah. ingredients they have, but they all have them. And, and then you look on, the camera pans back and I look at, Elvis Costello, Andy Partridge, D Difford and Tilbrook, uh, all the sort of second generation Beatle kids, myself. Mm. Um, and that's just in Britain, but it's all people who were in that, of that school. Yes. Um, and at that point you think, well, there actually is a genre of Beatle music. So Andy Partridge and I get together when we can and we put out an EP, which I shoot, I should have brought up. I can yes. get you one. I've oh, got, can. I've got They're one. They're for sale around the corner in Tower Records. Are they? Yes, they are. Is there a Tower Records? There's a Tower Records in Independent, England. Yeah. An independent Tower Records. And it's for sale. It is for you sale. Gods, the distribution must have kicked in. So, we can nip okay. around and you can... You they can, are not sponsoring can, us in any way. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely there. Uh, okay, well, there's that, the record. We put out a four-track EP hmm. um, last year on, on Andy's label, Ape, but we're working on what I hope if we... If we both last long enough would be an LP of, yeah. of full length and that's you know that is Beatle music yeah. um, essentially the, you know Andy and I basically write to the same rules but one, of, one yeah. of the things I heard you say about that was that, that you and Andy are, are still trying to make the missing Beatles album yes. still, <laughs> still, which I thought that's, a, that's yeah. a very noble ambition that's a that's a I don't think we've even, I mean, I don't think we've even sort of discussed that but I can tell that's what we're doing mm. you know you can see that mm. 
as soon as we get into the shed and he starts getting his effects on things, but you, you know, can see, um, and, but you can you can hear that, yeah. consistent. I don't I don't yeah. pretend to have every single one of your twenty one albums. Me but, neither. But, no, but, <laughs> but you can hear sort of uh, on almost every album there's that there are there are those chords and those sounds and yeah. sort of bubbling up. Yeah. Um. I, I was saying to Jason, we were having a coffee before the, uh, and I was saying, is it is it I pray when I'm drunk. Oh yeah, which just it sounds like a Ringo song from Rubber Soul. It sounds that era. It's, oh. it's, it's that sort of country. No, you're going to say no, no, that's not. No, it's really. actually well, it's it's kind of uh, it's sort of Doctor Robert, the music maybe, but I hadn't thought of the. But yeah, and and uh, Virginia Woolf, Virginia Woolf. That has a very revolver sound to me. Oh, it should. Yeah, it's that's just, great. No, you that, know, and it just comes. Oh, but it's it, once I've got once if I've got two guitars, bass, and drums and harmonies, then I'm you know I'm <laughs> basically going to be aiming for that revolver sound. I, I yeah. lack the initiative to try anything new. You know, I just that's you know it's like a blues purist or yeah. something. You know, the Rolling Stones basically almost academically studied the Chicago blues. Yeah. I mean, you know, they developed a different sound in the end, but that, uh, yeah, it's a genre, but I it's, suppose. It's interesting to hear. <laughs> Musically, you, anyway. Yeah. It is interesting to hear you put it like that, 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 like it's a manifesto to listen to that music and try and write what comes next. And I certainly, you know, I love Andy Partridge as well and the Dukes of Stratosphere and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's interesting that more people don't do that. I know it's a hard thing to do because what, uh, what you tend to get is Beatle pastiche more so from, you know, in uh, from from sometimes from people who who create something that so, they think well, is Beatley, but Oasis, it's not actually it's Oasis. You're you're talking about. Well, Oasis. I'm not totally talking about Oasis, but I think there's a difference between oh, we're going to do something that kind of sounds like the Beatles, or I'm, we're going to take the work that they did and we're going to try and infuse it with our own originality and our own belief um, and imagination. Some of it's done without imagination, I guess is what, hmm. I'm, what I'm getting at. Does, does that seem unfair? Well, if you don't have an imagination, then you're not going to imagine very much. <laughs> but I mean, different elements appeal to different people. So Neil Innes oh. sort of got the sound perfectly and down to the sort of Lennon chewing gum and singing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, he's faultless. You know. And uh, whereas the Oasis brothers had Noel Gallagher kind of grew up going to football matches and thought that's what I want to write I want to write songs that a stadium will sing Yeah. whereas me I probably went to you know I sat on the floor cross-legged at little gigs and thought I want to write songs that only 73 people will listen to <laughs> you know because I was also into the incredible string band and Captain yes. Beefheart and stuff that was very much not for everybody and that side of my Psyche has won out over Beetle Robin, which is mm. you know the Beatles side of me is is universal, but mm. the the incredible string band Sid Barrett, Captain Beefheart, Lou Reed kind of side of me is very much no. I'm doing this for a small group of people who are going to get what I'm doing. I'm not interested in trying to, you know, God forbid a football stadium should Suddenly, walk in. Yeah. So you know, I and my career has been very very emphatically avoided any kind of success that, <laughs> in that respect. But that is a Beatle thing that you do what's true to yourself and you do, you know, if anyone else likes it, that's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's just lucky that they were able to be true to four selves for, for quite a long time. And then I suppose, you know, Maxwell Silverhammer didn't feel true to John and George. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, 
everything was true to Ringo. I don't know if he had favourites. And Paul, Paul's so adaptable. You know, he mm. could, any style of music they could come up with, he contributed. And John, I think John and George, obviously I wasn't in the group, but but they, they were quite dismissive of what he did to their songs mm. because once he'd gone, their songs really lacked... They lacked that sort of hooky bass line. They like, you know, Klaus Vormann was nice, but he wasn't going to make any trouble. Mm. Uh, there's the trouble. They, every, everybody then, it's that same old thing. You get big and you don't want anyone around who's going to stand up to you. And the only people who stand up to you, the other guys in the band, so, yeah. you know, Mick and Keith or whatever. But Well, you can you kind know. of say that Paul, for all his, uh, I know he's often labelled as the guy who announced the Beatles split, but he was kind of almost the guy who never left the Beatles. He George he, had a run, Ringo had a yeah. run, John had a run. He said I was the last to leave. Mm. Um, I think he he really, no, I, I don't think he, I think he really, I think he knew what he had. Yeah. But that's the other thing. You Time shows that Paul was, as someone's recently said, the adult of the group. Mm. He was the realist you know, well, uh, certainly as a teenager, I felt for Paul was a bit embarrassing. Now that I'm older and I've, you know, you know, family and all that kind of stuff, you kind of see more what he's doing when you see his whole career in retrospect. You kind of go, OK, he, uh, I, I get it a bit more now. And I, you know, I, I, I love some of that stuff I would have sneered at as a, as a 15 year old, something like a, a song like Sea Moon. When I first heard that, I really didn't like it. And now I think it's. It's 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 just a fantastic kind of little nugget of what was in his head at that time. What about um, wonderful Christmas time? I will defend that song to the end of the really? earth. Really? Yeah. Whoa, you like it? Yeah. Uh, here's here's my, here's <laughs> here's my take. Yeah. I love Paul McCartney records and recordings, which are just him opening his head and tipping it onto the tape. Yeah. And wonderful Christmas time was done in about twelve hours in a studio on his own. And I think if you strip out the um, the vocal and the, the, mm. the sleigh bells, it's a very strange, weird backing track of squelchy synths and whining synths. And there isn't really a lot going on. And for him to go, yep, yeah, that's a Christmas song. There's a quote from Clive James I heard after he died, which was Paul McCartney has the knack of making, uh, what was it, making the, um, the unobvious seem inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought, yeah, that is a wonderful Christmas time. People kind of knock songs like that and knock songs like Mullock and Tyre. And I'm like, you could sing, anyone in the street could sing that song from the core of their DNA. And I think that's a gift in and of itself. I, I, I do love Wonderful Christmas Time, oh, I'm it's afraid. it's a gift. I, I mean, I completely admire the way he did. <laughs> a really interesting point about the backing track. Yeah. I suppose that's one of the big differences between me and him. I would have kept Yesterday as Scrambled Egg. Yes, <laughs> uh, those are much more me kind of lyrics, yeah. or John lyrics, I suppose. And wonderful Christmas time, I would have put something completely uncommercial over the top of it. Would have probably been more like Ian Dury or something. Yes. but you know, wouldn't have sold. Yeah. Um, have you heard uh, the McGear album? Mike his McGear, brother. his brother, was there's an album no. that was released, and we're both big fans. It's back. That, it's him back by Wings, essentially. So it's basically Wings in 1974, done yeah. in 10CC studio, and it's oh. extremely odd. Yeah, and you think Paul could do, felt able to do that, standing behind his brother, but when it came to yeah. Wonderful yeah. Christmas Time, it's he's back to being Paul. So no matter how odd the music or how he 
he feels the need to polish it up, yeah. uh, put a nice commercial lyric on it. Whereas if, as you say, if he can just sort of tip the contents of his head onto a table, yeah, the way he did, I recommend, I really recommend you. Is it, oh, really? The older I guess. It's, it's very, he, but is, is it, but is it his, is it Mike's lyrics? He, What's he, Mike's? He, it's his lyrics. Right. And one of and the other. singing sort of, them over Paul's, sort of Paul's music. music. Paul, yeah. Paul has written uh, sort of the, the, the melodies and the, and the, the songs. Yeah. But one of the interesting things you think, well, what would Wings have been like if, if someone like, Mike McGear, who is a poet, really, had provided the lyrics. If Paul had felt, uh, yeah, th- as you say, suddenly maybe scrambled eggs is the right lyric, and and, yeah. and he goes with that. And uh, but I think his his commercial, he's a, as you say, he's a pleaser. He his he needs the approval. Well, he does that showbiz thing, but I, I think when you look at the core of it, I think Paul McCartney's a very strange man. Like I think he's really odd, and you know. In the 80s, when I was a, a pop kid, he was wearing jumpers and popping up at Noel Edmonds and it just all seemed a little bit off. But, you know, when you actually think of what he's doing and how he's managed to stay reasonably sane, I think some of the stuff when you go into the nooks and crannies is quite odd. And if you approach Wonderful Christmas Time as the song of an odd man, it actually sounds different, I think. Well, that's a good point. Maybe he's actually an alien who's had to disguise himself <laughs> as... As a human, so he's made a, a point of trying to make himself seem as normcore as possible. <laughs> well, yeah, normcore is normcore. Yeah. Where I he says that a genre. He, he said, it is a genre. Yeah. yeah, he said uh, in some interview. Well, you know, I'm like people. That's why I'm successful. But actually, maybe that's the thing. He's like people, but he isn't one. I think, no, it's like somebody's told him what a person is sometimes. And so he's replicated it. There's a brilliant YouTube video of Paul McCartney making mashed potatoes which you watch it and, and it's like he's never seen a potato before. He doesn't really know what's going on. And he, he obviously has his gifts, but it ain't in mashing potatoes. Really? And, uh, yeah. Is he doing it with Linda or something? It was a thing he did for a Linda cookbook back in the oh. day. Right. And uh, so I think it was a little online video or something and somebody's put it up. And he's very charming and nice and all the rest, but he's, yeah. you know, he's trying to deflect from the fact I, that he's not making great I, mashed I, potatoes. I, looked at, I watched that and, I, and the first thing that came into my head was weed. <laughs> oh, and I thought uh, it's uh, yeah. But you're right. He, he this is the thing. You know, I'm people. He has a song, "Average Person," where he's going. Imagine what it would be like to be an engine driver, or imagine what it would mm. be like to be. A, and you're thinking, well, we don't have to because we are engine drivers. And <laughs> well, I suppose you know, it's we so are, long it's ago since, since he was person. in that world. So perhaps he wants to hold on to it. But mm. well, he now writes these retrospective songs of "I was on a bus and I had a job before I was famous" and all that kind of stuff. And I must be remembering a long way back. I think yeah. he's holding on to some threads there, it's but I think that's where his sanity is. You know, otherwise. It's... But there are interesting things about him, like he apparently doesn't, and I've seen him. He doesn't appear to rehydrate during a three-hour gig. No, he it's doesn't strange. take any water. No. Nor does he sweat. Um, and he. Hmm. Uh, we're back to the alien theory. We're back to the alien theory, <laughs> and uh, it's possible that he is. You're right. Maybe he's a maybe he's a replica, replica <laughs> kind of counterfeit. Uh, he's a human-style human. <laughs> God, I mean, I wouldn't. Plus, he's lasted. Yeah. You know, he he has an equilibrium which is absolutely staggering. Yes. You, you you and you can see even by the end of the Beatles that you know the others. I mean, John and George took more acid, and they mm. whatever and they were they were obviously pretty clobbered by the whole process. There's George gives that interview later years saying, "Well, you know, the Beatles gave their central nervous systems," <laughs> yeah. and um, 
they were maybe rather ungrateful for what what the world gave them even but but paul just he is so insanely buoyant yeah you know, he seems um, he seems very self-contained post post beatles he was he was the one that didn't want to leave he was the last person to leave but well, since I, the beatles he he's you know we were saying he 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 doesn't seem to hang out with showbiz types. I don't know that you could name his Well, I think he's a great his... uh, compartmentalizer. And he didn't. Yeah, uh, he, probably. He, he, um, there's all these stories about Paul of when he was a teenager, he'd get on the bus in Liverpool and pretend to be a poet or he'd smoke a pipe or he'd imagine himself into being a thing. And I think ah. he's in the 50th year or 60th year of his project of imagining himself as the world's biggest pop star. And... You know, who knows what it would take to take that away? I, d- I don't know, but it's uh, it's working. Well, it's an interesting role, isn't it? Yeah. But he's definitely the man for the job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you ever met or interacted with any of them in, in person? Um, no. Uh, the only thing I actually did quite literally bump into Paul McCartney at a uh, Peter Blake's birthday party. I used to be a neighbour of Peter Blake's in, yeah. when I lived in West London, and uh, he had a... a 80th birthday party upstairs at the Albert Hall. Madness were playing. Oh wow! Funnily enough, and um, uh, and I, I bumped. I, I just Paul McCartney was dancing, and he bumped into me, or I bumped him, and I said, "Sorry, whoops," and that was it. But that's that's my closest <laughs> that's I've your got interaction. To him, but that's my only interaction. That's that's enough. That's all you but, need. Um, but it, I, you know, he was definitely there. I've, I've seen him. He was at a Brian Wilson gig. I saw him there, and I've seen him on stage a couple of times. So, yeah. so you know, I know he's, I know he's there. His voice has got a bit thin. It was quite spotty when I saw him in Sydney mm. uh, a couple of years ago. And we, last year in Las Vegas, I think it was less spotty, but it was a bit thin. That's where Stephen oh, that's was. That's where I saw him. You were at the Vegas gig. Yes, you I saw was that. There. Did you go to the sound check? Uh, no, I couldn't get I couldn't get uh, tickets. Oh, okay. The Were you person, at the sound check? Well, a friend of ours took us, and he very generously <sighs> bought the sound check tickets, very and nice. um, uh, that's great because it's sort of it's kind of faux sound check. Mm. You know, they're not in their stage gear, and there's bits where they stop and confer. But Paul's still addressing the hundred people who've paid whatever it is extra to go and watch. Yeah. And you're all quite near the stage. Um, and uh, I, I tried and, so hard. Oh, to God. Get he did. He did. God, he started out with Honey Don't, I think. And he played Ram, which was nice, oh. Ram on. And he played a lot of just covers that, I would, you I know. Would, I would love if he would do those songs uh, in the main set. He just seems so fixed. He has a fixed set list. There's maybe two songs swapped out every night, and it's just the same thing, note after note, you know, night after night, yes. same note for note. Uh, but uh, were you then there the night that uh, Steven Tyler? Oh, came God, on? I'm afraid so. Yeah, I was there. The, I was there the next night. Oh, you were there the following night. I was there the following. Was night. he not there? He wasn't there. Oh, mm. shit. And, I should and, have gone to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, then I shouldn't shouldn't say. But two days two days after that, I actually did pick up a ticket and I went to see Aerosmith. Oh, and did and Paul McCartney turn up? I was convinced Paul McCartney was going to turn up because Tyler came yeah. out, sat down, and he played the piano and sang the opening, uh, you know, uh, lines of Golden Slumbers. Once oh. I was away to get back home, oh. and I just for a second I thought Paul's going to come out, and he oh. just played it. And he said, oh, "I just have to get that off my chest." Oh. <laughs> but uh, but did you not feel in that the the the, the sort of the, the the affection that the audience had for him at, at those shows? I was sort of down maybe about sort of ten or twelve rows back from the stage. Yeah, and I could just yeah. feel 
in a way that the the English gigs just ah, didn't. Well, that's the thing. I haven't seen him here. Mm. I mean, I saw him here. I saw him here in 1973 at Hammersmith Odeon. Wow. Uh, and at that point, he wasn't doing any Beatles songs, and there no. wasn't much mm. Wings. I mean, they hadn't. He hadn't even written Band on the Run. Mm. So he was drawing from three record Red Road Speedway. Yeah. Um, they had the sort of five part harmonies that were pretty good. Big big big, big, big barn, barn bed. bed. Yeah. He did Long Tall Sally as one of the encores, mm. but uh, you know, by the end of that decade, he was already playing Beatles songs. Yeah. I mean, that's another interesting thing is. Watching people turn into oldies acts, mm. um, I've seen Brian Ferry in in the mid '90s, and he did some Roxy music stuff, but a lot of it was from his latest album with horses on it. You know, when, yeah. in that country gentleman <laughs> phase. Yeah, and then next time I saw him, it was much more oldies. And last time I saw him, it was almost completely from Avalon and. Yeah. Flesh and Blood, and there was like one song from his solo. Yeah. There was nothing after Slave to Love. Mm. And Paul didn't do anything after Temporary Secretary. He didn't do it. I, I mean, he did Here Today. Yeah. And I think he did a couple of songs. He always does new album songs just as a nod. Well, he did one or two, and yeah. he, he might have said it the night he said, he said uh, well, you know, because we see you up there. When we see you, we see you with the camera, ringing the cameras out for the old ones, and we're, we're doing all that. So, mm -hmm. so we know you don't pull them out so much for a new one, but we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> and um, you know, he 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 was he's aware of the fact that the new ones don't go down mm -hmm. so well because because new songs don't resonate yeah all the way back. And I've I've learned that myself that. You know, I am with my tiny clientele. I too am an oldies act, and if I want people to to like my new stuff, the less of it I play, the better. Uh, you know, you front load the set with old songs, you finish with old songs, you spike. You know, and in fact, if I didn't play anything after 1990, most of my crowd would be just as happy. It either reminds them of being young, or they're younger people who are into. You know, they've discovered me through their parents or YouTube, you know, their music students. So it all goes back. Yeah. And the longer people have lived with a song, the more it resonates with mm. them. It doesn't mean your new stuff isn't good, but it hasn't, just hasn't. What, just yeah, you're fighting against take, the old stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know, you've got your own, your own history and you've got, and you've got their own history yeah. as well. So unfortunately, the only person who can be an exception to that is Bob Dylan. Hmm. Yes. Um, but it's a very strange, you know, and he, his thing is he'll play some old songs, but you won't recognize them. Hmm. But the, you know, the good performances from Dylan are when he does songs that are less than 20 years old and they haven't melted. Um, <laughs> yes. So anyway, there we are. We've covered the world. There's one or two <laughs> things I wanted to finish with. And one was um, when you play a Beatles song for an audience, Mm. Do you notice something in the audience? Because I have to admit, the first ever concert camera clip I think I was sent was you, Nick Lowe and Elvis Costello singing If I Fell oh. in concert about 10 years ago. Somebody sent me a YouTube link. Oh, is there? And I thought, oh, wow. oh that's great. I'm, I'm sure you probably don't approve of cameras in concerts. But if you unleash a song like that, do, do you think audiences have a different response to Beatle music? It depends how well you do it. <laughs> I mean, they were excited because because... Costello got up with us. Yeah, um, I'm not sure how good the version was that we did, but ah, uh, uh, I mean they're Beatles songs, you know, so they resonate. Yeah, I mean they're great songs, and I think also probably 
if I'm singing a Beatles song, I'm probably performing differently. I, I, I'm not trying to... If I do somebody else's song, I'm channeling them. I'm not trying to interpret them. Yeah. I'm not really yeah. interested in, I'm going to put a Robin Hitchcock spin on this. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, especially if it's Lennon, I'm simply trying to get as close to the original sound as I can. Yeah. And, you know, the guitars, the whole, okay, we're going to do something off Revolver. Can we make those guitars clang and chime that way? Yeah. Can we get that, we'll double track the harmony so it actually, it, it's got that, you know, live sound. So we, I or people I'm playing with, even if it's, you know, whether it's Wilco or the Nashville Fabs yeah. or, you know, in the old days, the softball, whoever, whoever I've got with me, I, I'm always trying to make it sound, feel like the original. So I'm method acting, yeah. you know. Well, it's, it's that version of uh, Cold Turkey, Cold Turkey yeah. uh, uh, on Can of Bees. Well, that's so long ago. That's <laughs> probably... I think I've perfected my John Lennon imitation much better. I was probably still sound a bit like Robin Hitchcock there, and I'm sort of shouting. I would, I, I would, I would do it much more faithfully now. I think I just didn't know how to do it faithfully. Well, well you, you'll not be surprised to know that's the song that made me buy that 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 album back in Can't the day. Be. Wow. What I what I what I like about that is you put a bass line. You put it's almost a danceable bass line that you have on that. And I like to think oh. you, there was some talk back in 69, you know, Lennon brought Cold Turkey in and said, this is the next single. And George and Paul said, no, no, we're not. The Beatles aren't doing Cold Turkey. And oh. I, I like to imagine that that's what you were going for. You were thinking, well, the how, would, how would the Beatles of version Turkey. of Cold Turkey? Oh, <laughs> well, that would be the bass player, um, Andy Metcalf, who played on that. So he was probably, I don't suppose... Yeah, he would have put something melodic in there. If you if you yeah. crank that bass line up, it's, oh, really? it's, it's cold turkey as a dance <laughs> number. Oh, it's wow. fantastic. I'll have to have a listen. Well, right. last yeah. thing before we let you go, this might seem like an obvious question. Do you still listen to the Beatles or do you like these reissues or the bootlegs and all these kind of bonus tracks or do you find that they're so on the fingertips of your brain that you can just listen to them in your head any time or would you still oh, put on a Beatles mean. record? No, no, I still put on Beatles records. Um... I haven't listened extensively to the Giles Martin mm. remixes, but again, I think there's a place for them. I, I, I don't think it's sacrilegious. You know, it it just means that certain things become clarified mm. that weren't there before. But I just think, okay, there's the mono mixes, certainly yeah. of the of uh, Sergeant Pepper and White album. Um, then there's the stereo mixes, and now there is the enhanced mix. And yeah. there's a place, you know, I, I, I like hearing a clarified version of what's happening in um, Mr. Kite. You know, there's yeah. certain things where you just hear it much more clearly. I don't think it's better. It's just different. Yeah, and it's, it's think, more to enjoy. But, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to shell out the extra 30 <laughs> quid for yet another version. Um That's our classical music. It's yes. our folk music. It's It's like the best thing that... Britain produced it's the best thing that you know well, to me that <laughs> if you had to justify humanity you know you you've got you've got on one side you've got Hitler and Donald Trump and <laughs> uh, nuclear weapons and the Holocaust and things that you know things I've done myself which aren't in that league but aren't that great there's all the horror of humanity which I you know is pretty it's, it, we're a pretty shitty species really <laughs> Um, and and then you know what's on the other hand? It's it's the Beatles. To me, the Beatles yeah. sort of justifies. It's like Shakespeare. It's just sort of there's some 
essence of brilliance and emotional intelligence and whatever it is that makes life worth living yeah. it, 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 the beatles have it and and it's also kind of universal it, you always mythologize your own youth so it's hard to tell and I, I guess will people feel this way about ed sheeran in 50 years time maybe they will but you know just the most popular musical act in the world was also the greatest and that's another thing where you feel there's a higher power was yeah. at work you know Robin Hitchcock thank you so much for coming in and talking to us today about oh. the, the conversation that never ends the conversation about the Beatles <laughs> thanks for having me very much thank uh, you and uh, that's all from this time round. Uh, we are available online in the usual places on Twitter at Beatles Pod. Yeah. Uh, you can also go on and join the Facebook group and Stephen might let you in or might not let you in. He'll decide what's going on. And um, until next time, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thank you for listening. Nothing Is Real is powered by Acast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.